I'm not a futurologist, but without a doubt, it will be a future. It has to be a future in which we acknowledge our relationships and debt to everyone else that we share the planet with. Welcome to Here's to the Future, a podcast series by Stripe in which we invite artists and thinkers from the Stripe network to share their thoughts about our future. Today, our program manager Nadine meets with writer and artist James Bridal, who has a long-standing interest in technology, arts and ecology. This year, James published a new book, Ways of Being Beyond Human Intelligence, in which they consider the fascinating, uncanny and multiple ways of existing on Earth. What can we learn from these other forms of intelligence and personhood? And how can we change our societies to live more equitably with one another, including other than humans and the non-human worlds? So, hi James, hi. welcome to uh, Eindhoven, to uh, Stripe Festival 2022, the end uh, to infinity. How is it to be uh, back here? It's always good. It's really good to see the crew and it's really good to see another version of the festival happening. Yeah, great. And um, also, we're here in real life, no screens. I mean, for me, it's a bit uh, still a bit weird to see so many people around. Um, and it's been three years ago. Um, you won the Act Award with your work um, server farm test plot. And uh, the Act Award is the award for creative technology. And you also published your new book. Yeah, it's out today. I'm today, yeah, it. congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, how was it uh, to write and to make these artworks uh, in a, during a pandemic, maybe? Uh, complicated, like everything else. Uh, I think, ultimately, I was in one of those lucky people for whom the pandemic was very good for the writing, <laughs> as in it gave me space and time to write that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And it, it transformed the book and informed it in various ways. Um, the artwork was a little bit harder. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the act award is supposed to take place over one year, uh, but it's been quite disrupted by COVID. So we're spreading it over two years. So I'm showing a kind of interim presentation here and hoping to complete the project over the next year. Yeah, yeah. So for people that don't know, the Act Award is an open call. We launch it uh, every year, the Award for Creative Technology, and uh, you were selected by the jury. And um, yeah, at Stripe, we always, we like artworks that are, they don't have to be finished, so they can be works in progress, and yours is a good example of it. So um, server form test plot. Actually, you want to build a computer uh, made of and in collaboration with plants and critters. It sounds quite like... Science fiction. Can you tell me a bit more about... Uh, yeah, so the, the broadest server farm project is um, a, a very long-term project uh, because it's not science fiction. It's something very real that's very achievable, uh, but will take time. Um, the idea is to bring together a huge amount of kind of research and practice that's being done by scientists and artists and researchers all over the place and in many different disciplines who are looking at the uh, abilities of plants and microorganisms in particular, so bacteria, fungi, things like this, uh, to, to do quite complex cognitive computational processes. Um, with, the, with the totalizing idea of the server farm that it might be possible to bring together all these different strands of research uh, and kind of put them into conversation with each other, quite literally, so that these different plants, microorganisms and people are sharing information. And by putting them all together to actually create what we might think about as a computer, though it would look very different to any computer that we've had before, um, where as information is passed between these different organisms, some kind of computational process, a kind of collaborative thinking happens. Mm -hmm. um, I'm imagining that as a kind of farm, um, hopefully a pretty kind of open uh, and non kind of industrial one uh, in which that collaboration takes place. Um, because then it brings in ideas of kind of permaculture and ecology and a kind of sustainable relationship with the earth. And also, you know, a, a form in which we can think of what meaningful, equal collaboration between humans and non-humans actually looks like. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more what, what you mean with that? Collaboration between non-humans and humans. How, I mean... We're always collaboration, uh, collaborating with each other. We're existing together in this world. Um, so for the people that might not know the non-humans, this can be everything, right? Like plants, but also... Uh... Yeah, the, the, the term that I, that I use quite a lot and I prefer is the term more than human. 
Um, because when we when we try and talk meaningfully about human relationships with non-human species, whether that's animals, plants, microorganisms, as I say, or even whole ecosystems, we always tend to have these quite divisive terms like humans and non-humans, which kind of puts a barrier between us. And it's weird how that barrier kind of infects so much of our discussions around the environment and ecology, even the term environment, even though it's kind of, uh, you know, the term we hear all the time is environmental activism or uh, kind of environmental activists. The term environment itself places a, a space, a gap between us and our environment, as though the environment is something over there mm. that we can we can play with, we can use, we can use as a resource, we can try and improve. But in fact, the environment is not separate from us in any way. We, we're completely embedded in our environment and entangled with it. And the term more than human uh, attempts to kind of bridge that gap or remind us always that actually we're part of a much vaster world and we're not the most important thing in it by any means. And actually everything in it is kind of uh, equally alive and I believe equally intelligent in in kind of multiple differing ways. And so we must always try and kind of place ourselves within it in this way and trying to think of our place within it as part of a larger uh, system. Yeah. Um, and, and so Server Farm, as well as being this attempt to kind of figure out what are the problems we might work on as part of a more than human world and the way in which we might phrase questions and hear answers, um, it's also a place to kind of test out what it means to treat plants, for example, as collaborators in a really meaningful sense, I, as, as subjects themselves, as participants with their own um, abilities, their own agency, their own knowledge, and not merely as the kind of objects of our experiments. So one of the ways I'm thinking about how to start thinking about server farm is to kind of break it down into this, this idea of fields. So each field containing perhaps you know one or several species working on some kind of particular aspect of the problem that we set ourselves, um, uh, and the 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 test plot one the the one that I'm doing through the Act Award is I'm working with uh, hyperaccumulator plants and with the researchers who also work with them. And what um, are hyperaccumulator? Hyperaccumulator plants are um, they're across many species. It's a term for a particular type of plants which are capable of living in um, soils which are toxic to many other kinds of plants because they're very full of metals of various kinds. Um, the ones I'm working with are nickel hyperaccumulators, which means they live in very nickel-rich soils, um, naturally occurring. In fact, a lot of the early research on hyperaccumulators was done in the context of mining, when mining companies in the 1990s realized that if they could plant these plants deliberately on old industrial sites, uh, the plants would actually not just be able to survive there, but they actively remediate the soil. By which I mean, as they grow, they pull the metals out of the soil and store it in their stems and leaves, which is already a kind of incredible ability. But by doing so, just by growing there, they effectively clean the soil of kind of industrial contaminants. And what was subsequently realized is you could plant these plants on uh, naturally occurring metal-rich soils and harvest them like a crop, but for metal. They're, they're metal plants, essentially, yeah. and what we're doing there is harvesting metal. And um, there's research going on uh, in several site, sites around Europe. There's similar soils in the US and there's particularly in um, Malaysia as well. Um, but northern Greece and Albania have a, a big areas of nickel-rich soils. And so there's plants that have naturally evolved there to be able to live and accumulate these metals. And so the, the plot that I'm working with, which is established by scientists from the... Um, University of Thessaloniki up in northern Greece is a is a field in the mountains. It's a really incredibly beautiful spot in the region of Epirus, which is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Um, a kind of very mountainous region, um, and this there's this little field in which they've been growing uh, small gardens, small fields of uh, three types of plant uh, called Alison murale, uh, Bonmuela timphaea, and Bonmuelo emarginata. And these are three plants which are local to the region, to varying degrees, which we could talk about, um, that all have this property of accumulating nickel in their leaves. And for five years now, they've been growing these plants, harvesting them, and then extracting the nickel from them. And it's an extraordinary thing that you can mine metal from plants, essentially, yeah. but critically without uh, the kind of really violent extractive 
processes that characterize most industrial mining uh, and in a process that also actually uh, remediates the land and makes it suitable for other kinds of agriculture afterwards. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. I didn't know that plants could eat metal before I heard about your project. And um, yeah, this is a work in progress uh, because I know that there were some challenges because if I think of you want to build a computer, I think of a MacBook, <laughs> like there's quite some uh, nickel and other kinds of materials that need to be mined. So how long does it, is it going to take to, to, to have everything to build a computer? Well, I'm not going to build a traditional computer. Okay. So that's, that's a big part of it. And I'm, to, to be honest, at this point, I don't know what role nickel in particular might play in the future server farm. I'm not sure if it needs to play a role at all, but I'm really interested in this process of working with plants. As I say, teaches us perhaps as much about how to work collaboratively, collaboratively with plants as much as it does about the, the kind of end product. Because it's, for me, it's really about understanding this kind of embodied knowledge that's present within these plants that have been growing in these regions for long before humans arrived uh, and are very particular to those, to those locations. Um, but um, but what I'm trying to do for the Act Award, just as a kind of um, test case, is to take some of those, take some of that nickel and use it in some very simple, basic electrical components, just in some wires or perhaps some other things. Um, and because um, the processing of that nickel requires some laboratory work, and those laboratories have been closed due to COVID, ah, yes. uh, haven't been able to obtain the nickel yet. Yeah. Um, but Hopefully that will happen over the next year and we'll be able to get into the kind of final bit of the project, which is really important for me because I, I as I said earlier, like this is not a science fictional project. Uh, I'm not I'm not speculating on something uh, and I'm not trying to just merely describe it. I want to actually make something real that works. Yeah, because for me, that's always really, really important to this work is to um, is to make work that works, essentially, yeah. to show that this is that this is real and possible and doable by us. Yeah, exactly. And I, what I also remember of reading your uh, new book, The Ways of uh, Being Beyond Human Intelligence, you also state that like making and education is very important in trying to understand the technologies that uh, we use. And um, you write that um, in the book that that is about a lot of new technologies and how we how we think about them, how we might make find meaning in them or uh, create new ways to see the world, um, that the internet and network theory have gained um, new knowledge that let us understand the natural world in a sort of updated way, to speak uh, with metaphors from the internet, um, with new perspectives, new knowledges, new, new ideas, and um, these come with new ways of seeing that also influence uh, the way we see the natural world. So have, if we wouldn't have had uh, digital technologies on the internet, we might not have found the metal plants, uh, the metal eating plants. How do you think about this relationship between how we again and again see the world in different ways due to the technologies? Yeah, I mean, it, it, for me, this is just a fascinating thing to try and understand. Uh, and I think the word relationships is key um, because we don't discover these things kind of ex nihilo, out, out of nothing. We discover them as a result of our, our relationships, our interactions with the world around us. Uh, and this process is cyclical. It's always a kind of back and forth between yeah. our technologies, ourselves and the world, um, which, are, which even are not separate things entirely um, by any means. Um, but uh, as an example of, of the way that I think about this, um, you know, I'm very interested and have been for many years in, in, in artificial intelligence, um, but particularly in really what we mean by that, because it's a very fuzzy term uh, that can mean all kinds of things and often doesn't really mean anything at all. Um, uh, and there's many ways we might think about artificial intelligence, and there's many ways that it's portrayed in the media or the way scientists talk about it or the way it's portrayed in science fiction and the kind of public imagination. Um, and I'm particularly interested in that question of, of, of what we think artificial intelligence is for, yeah. because primarily at the moment we're using it to build onto our existing systems to essentially make more complex computers. But what I'm starting to think is that actually what artificial intelligence does, what its role in society is, is to really make us aware of the existence of non-human intelligence. Because really for, for most of human history, at least in the 20th century and at least in the West, um, intelligence has been something that's considered to be defined by human intelligence. That's what supposedly makes humans unique is our possession of intelligence. 
And we're realizing that that's really not the case, that intelligence is much more widespread. But there's a role for me for technology in helping us to understand that because we pay so much more attention to our own creations than the things that surround us. Yeah. And as we slowly realize that artificial intelligence is not like human intelligence, then suddenly we're presented with an example of an intelligence that is not human and therefore suggests the, the existence of many different forms of intelligence. And as soon as you have that realization, it opens the door to the realization of all these other kinds of intelligences that have been here all along that we don't pay too much attention to. Yeah. And for me, the internet is a little bit like that. For all the things it does, what it also does is provide us with a series of kind of models and metaphors for understanding the world around us. Before we built the internet, we didn't have the kind of concepts of networks and of the ways in which uh, systems interact that allowed us to see that those systems already existed in nature around us. Yeah. So as well as providing tools for ourselves, like direct tools for us, I believe the role of technology is to kind of present us with new metaphors that allow us to understand the world in, in radically different ways. Yeah, so actually the technologies help us become more in intelligent in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but not entirely by themselves. Like, like that's not just that's not just what technology does. It's what we can use technology for if we choose to think about it in that way. When I was reading your book, I was like, oh, I've also felt like a bit. Humans are not so smart, actually. You know, oh, we needed all this to understand this to actually just realize that we are in a way. Because when when I was reading, I thought. Sometimes I also heard like these, um, uh, like my, sometimes, you know, in the yoga classes that I take, they always like, listen to your body, just be. And that also resonated a bit in your book. And it also made me wonder, like, there's a reference to John Berger's ways of uh, seeing. Um, is there, I don't think it's a coincidence. So do you want to suggest that we need to shift from seeing the world to just being and yeah, just be in the world? Um, yeah, I mean, that's certainly one way one way of understanding it. And it certainly perhaps embodies a certain shift in what we consider to be the ways in which we access the world. Um, not merely through sight and certainly not merely through human sight. Um, there are many, many different ways of sensing the world. And if we concentrate merely on the aesthetics of the world, the way it appears to human eyes, then we're obviously going to miss out on a huge amount that's, that's you know, really important to understand about it. Um, I think... Being is perhaps a, a you know a more a useful verb in this context because it emphasizes a um, uh, an awareness of the world that is based on existence rather than a, on a purely human faculty, and so it's something that we share with the rest of the more than human world. Uh, the experience of actually being in this world. One of the things I talk about in the book quite a lot is this idea of what aspects of the world we share. And when I talk about the world, I mean the world as we experience it, because we have no other access to the world than our own experiences of it, uh, which often leads us to be quite solipsistic in our, in our thinking about the world. We think the world is a, we think the world is about us. Yeah. And we think the world is defined by our own experience. Yeah. Uh, and we can mostly extend that to other humans um, because they mostly experience the world in the way that we do. But it's very hard to extend that to ants, say, yeah. or to wheat, or to mushrooms, because we don't understand how we might share the world with them in a meaningful way, right? Yeah. But if we understand them as having their own being and experiencing the world in their own way, as we are beginning to understand they do, we can start to develop an idea of a shared world, a world in which we all participate, all have meaningful action, all know something useful about and all can act upon. Yeah, exactly. So we at Skype, uh, we often uh, talked about post-anthropocene, that we have to enter the era where the human is not on the top of the pyramid. So you have those uh, visualizations of the human um, and then below there are all the other animals, species, plants. But we want to create like a circle in which everyone is equal and everyone collaborates or has its own place, but uh, not in a hierarchical uh, system. So um, how, do we, how, how, how do we get there? I mean, the important thing to realize is that we're already there. The, 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 um, the image, the constructed image of the kind of tree of life um, that's been around for, for millennia 
in medieval times, it was called the kind of Scala Naturae, the, which imagines a kind of stairway or ladder, you know, with God at the top and then the angels yeah. and then people and then animals, plants and kind of rocks down at the bottom. And that, that, that medieval religious image still exists in the popular understanding of science and particularly of genetics, where we imagine this kind of ever, ever upwards evolutionary tree with humans at the top. Um, there's a phrase from the, from the uh, evolutionary biologist, uh, Lynn Margulis, which I, which I think about a lot, where she simply notes that everything is equally evolved. Everything on the planet has been evolving for the same length of time. Nothing is more evolved than anything else. So that, that image of this kind of upwards evolution is complete rubbish and is in fact incredibly dangerous because it leads to this hierarchical way of thinking about the world. Um, it also leads us to kind of place a bunch of qualities at the top of that tree, assuming that things at the top of the tree are more intelligent, for example, mm. which is also rubbish. Because it turns out that intelligence has flowered um, in multiple different ways, kind of all over this tree, which is not a tree, which I kind of think of as maybe more like a kind of bush or a net or network or even a cloud, you know, something much more diffuse. But it's not just in our thinking either. I mean, you can really look into the, the kind of new understandings of genetics that we're starting to see, uh, when actually we've had to kind of tear up the whole evolutionary lineage that we thought we understood from genetics because we've come to understand things like horizontal gene transfer, where genes are transmitted between living organisms and between species, um, not just through kind of linear descent as Darwin understood it. So the whole tree is kind of collapsing, uh, is intertwining and entangling in ways that are, uh, you know, completely destructive of any kind of hierarchical ideas and admit the possibility of all these kind of multiple ways of, of doing intelligence and thinking the world. Yeah, exactly. So what you say is that our ideas of how we came to understand the world has been based on uh, on the history, what's been said in the past. And now we want to create, I think also because of the internet, but because of globalization that we came, um, we, we, know, we live in a way bigger world. So our way we make meaning of it has also changed um, radically. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be a bit careful of those terms because as we've said, technology is not a is a, not a value neutral term. It's something that's been uh, designed with particular interests at heart, and particularly globalization is a is, you know a kind of um, colonial capitalist project uh, directed by the most powerful people, and that is not in any way an inclusive project, and is not an equalizing one. Um, but nevertheless, we are at this time in our history possibly more connected and more aware of places far distant to us uh, than we've ever been in human history. And to some extent, I think that is causing us to look outside ourselves um, and to look kind of beyond our existing community and um, national and perhaps even species horizon. But it also comes with a lot of dangers because, as we've seen, um, the, this globalization as a colonialist capitalist process also basically leaves a lot of people confused, angry, uncertain. Uh, we, we see the rise of ethno-nationalism. We see the rise of... Um, and of extreme politics on both sides, mostly on the right, I should qualify. Um, and, uh, and, and the belief that simply more connection is somehow a good thing without accompanying education, without accompanying critical thinking, uh, without accompanying real equality um, is, is sort of quite dangerous. Um, but, um, but there's no doubt that the these increasing connections, these increasing awareness are driving us towards some new realization. Um, but it will take a lot of work and a lot of thinking to make that something that's actually beneficial to everyone. Yeah, yeah. And you also talk about um, this, this concept. I really, I think it's an interesting uh, hypothesis, the paperclip hypothesis. We're talking about what, how evil uh, technology can be or uh, become. So um, philosophers have speculated that AI with a task such as creating a paperclip um, that might cause an apocalypse by learning to divert ever-increasing resources to the task and then learning how to resist uh, our attempts to turn it off. I mean, that's like, we've seen it in many science fiction um, movies as well. Um, you, say, you say that something is really amiss in how we imagine that uh, what our tools are for. Can you, can you talk a bit more about this? Yeah, I mean, the paperclip hypothesis, which is a real thing and a real possibility, um, and a interesting way of thinking is also, I think, um, based on a huge number of assumptions about the way in which um, people use technologies, where technologies use us. 
um, and is trapped within a particular vision of technology as something inherently uh, acquisitive, um, in inherently extractive, as something which uses resources, uh, both you know minerals, uh, atmospheric resources, people to kind of do its bidding. And the problem with that is it reveals that the way we think about technology is inherently embedded within capitalist ways of thinking that are based on kind of ex uh, resource extraction um, and, and a kind of domination. Um, and so what I try to think through in the book and elsewhere is what technologies would look like that weren't based on those logics. Um, that in evolutionary terms were kind of raised within a, a different niche essentially, that were raised within um, systems of care and thoughtfulness and attentiveness to the needs and beinghood of others, uh, rather than being simple um, kind of resource acquisition and uh, domination machines. Uh, the paperclip hypothesis is, is the kind of fever dream of capitalists who can't imagine systems of care that don't end up dominating other people. Uh, it's entirely realistic, but it is also not the only possible future that we have. Yeah, and even though there are quite some scary uh, ideas or um, yeah concepts in your book that you uh, describe, um, it sounds a bit like different than uh, New Dark Age. Are, is it have you become a bit more optimistic, or how has your view changed since? Well, New Dark Age was written as a um, a, a, a statement, a trying to be incredibly clear about the situation that we're actually in. And so, of course, it was quite a depressing uh, read because, because we are in quite a depressing state with our technologies at the present. Um, and so I felt it was really important to be just really, really clear about where we are and the way in which technology is being constructed and, and the reasons that's come about so that we can think differently. Uh, Ways of Being is an attempt to do some of that thinking differently that follows on afterwards. Um, I'm not sure... Optimism and pessimism are particularly useful ways of kind of dividing up our ways of thinking anymore. Um, there was a brilliant essay published recently by one of my favorite writers, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, in Commune magazine uh, called Against Utopias, uh, sorry, huh, Against Dystopias, um, where he writes about the difficulty of writing about scary futures, uh, such as the future envisaged by, you know, uh, unchecked climate change the difficulty of avoiding dystopias when we're writing about that. Um, because if we write dystopias, then dystopias is probably what we're going to get. Um, he also cautions against utopia, because utopia contains a kind of false hope, a belief that everything actually will be sort of magically okay, um, which is also a dangerous promise because it forgets a lot of the hard work that might have to go into making that real. But what he does do is he emphasizes that what we can be is we can be anti-dystopian and we can be anti-anti-utopian. We can point out that even when things are bad, um, there are there is work to be done. There are things to be done. We can be perhaps globally pessimistic while being locally optimistic. Um, that there is um, there are things each of us, all of us, can do in the present to adjust that future. Um, I had a I had a really good conversation the other day at another event uh, with a climate scientist from the National Observatory of Athens, uh, in which he laid out you know the the implications of things like the most recent IPCC report yeah. showing what different future climates might look like. And there's actually something really extraordinary about that work that so often comes across as being incredibly frightening because it shows what you know, might happen is quite likely to happen in the future because it also continues to show that there are multiple possible futures available to us. Many worlds are possible and our agency remains as much as it ever does. The world contains enough resources um, uh, for all of us to survive and thrive on this planet. And they depend entirely upon, upon our, uh, our choices about what to do with it. So while there is multiple and very difficult fights ahead, um, there's no reason, it's very important not to descend into a kind of total um, pessimism or, or a dystopian view of the world, uh, because that prevents us acting at all. Yeah, and I think art can play an, an important role here as well. Um, also at Stripe, we try to imagine uh, futures or um, ideas, future scenarios in a critical, optimistic way. That's our term to come like in this balance uh, between uh, dystopia and utopia. And um, 
yeah, we we want to imagine this world in which the human is less do dominant and also um, important for the artists that we work uh, with, such as uh, topics that are come across are collaborating with AI, listening to the Northern Light, uh, Afrofuturism, indigenous knowledge, all these topics are um, can be seen as in the in the expo um, as well as the relationship to non-humans that you address often in the book and it's what what strikes me a lot is that um, we're like 50 years after the uh, report by the club of rome and we we don't seem to have listened um, because this not this new ipcc report shows us that yeah, that we're not having, we didn't listen to this 50 years ago. So what, what should we, how can we, how can we make us um, change? I think there's two, there's two important things which I try to remember and, and, and bear in mind uh, when thinking about this problem, which is a hard, knotty problem that we don't have the answers to. Um, the first part of that is that um, this is a fight. Um, that the reason we're in the situation we are in is because of entrenched powerful interests uh, that don't want to change. Uh, whether those are fossil fuel industries, whether those are um, kind of entrenched political powers, um, capitalist and colonial powers of all kinds, it's in their interest for us not to change. Uh, there's a, there's a, a very large uh, class of people who benefit from the status quo and will do anything uh, to prevent that change happening. So that's a huge friction we have to get over. And that's a huge political fight at the kind of social and national and community level. Um, and, and it's ridiculous to think that we will make any kinds of change unless we fundamentally change the kind of politics that our society engages in. Um, the second thing to bear in mind is that we are all struggling with this um, because it represents something deep and existential to our civilization. And that means... For me, as I, I think of it now, we are all in a kind of state of trauma of trying to process um, the, the information that we've been given without being given the tools to address it in really any meaningful way. You know, we've had kind of 30, 40 years now of things like uh, you know, individual recycling and individual responsibility of doing these things, of kind of top-down strategies um, that are presented as, as solutions in some way to the process that, again, don't... A, have any kind of meaningful effect on the actual problem, but also, you know, really don't give us any agency over the situation. And so the way that I deal with my own kind of climate trauma, the, 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 the trauma that's a result of, you know, becoming aware of the situation that we're in, is to learn, uh, to educate myself, to try and educate others or educate collectively about the actual tools that we have to have. So a lot of my work at the moment, for example, is around renewable energy. Um, I'm, I've been building for the last few years and helping other people build and teaching about the um, things like solar energy, things like uh, wind energy, literally building windmills, building solar panels, building even simple contraptions like little solar ovens. It's basically just like a little black box uh, that you can cook stuff in. Not because I envisage a future where we all live in caves and have to survive in this way. This isn't prepping, though it's quite close to it. Um, but what I believe is that by understanding these technologies as things that all of us can do, we increase our collective agency and we increase our ability to actually address the much larger problems from the ground up. Um, that's, that's how I work. That's what I think is useful work in the present. Um, because what's quite obvious is this problem won't be solved by those in power. And it won't be solved by the systems of knowledge that we have in place at the present. So we both need to empower everybody meaningfully um, to address this problem on their own terms. And we also need to bring in systems of knowledge and develop new systems of knowledge that simply aren't being applied in the present. Yeah. And what is the world, uh, the, the sh future scenario world that you think um, we should strive for? Because multiple worlds are possible. Um, I mean, the, 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 the futures are envisioned by things like the degrowth project, mm -hmm. um, which concentrated on, on lowering our, our energy usage, uh, lowering our uses of resources, um, which has to come, as I say, with kind of fundamental changes in the capitalist system. Um, these are possible imaginings of what that world looks like. Um, the, the IPCC report that we keep going back to, because it's kind of came out a few days ago, contains a fairly comprehensive list of um, 
the obvious and necessary actions we need to take in the present, the increased use of renewables, changes in diet and land use and so on and so forth, um, that are real and actionable in the, in the present. Um, I'm not a futurologist and I have no, I'm not going to pick some kind of, you know, one particular future um, out of all the possibilities, but without a doubt it will be a future, it has to be a future in which we acknowledge our relationships and debt to everyone else that we share the planet with uh, and all the other ways of knowing and being that it contains, um, because there we will find the knowledge of how to survive and thrive. In your book, you also write that Western science and popular imagination only now seem to take the non-human world um, full of intelligence and agency serious, seriously. And uh, that by this, we can reevaluate our world. And you ask yourself in the book, like, what would it mean to build artificial intelligences and other machines that were more like octopuses, fungi and forests? And what it, would it mean to live among them? Um, so we re already talked a bit about the more than humans. Um, but so why, um, how are artificial intelligence different than us, than our human uh, intelligence? Because, I mean, we created them. Um, I mean, most of the artificial intelligence that is real, um, as in actually existing, working in the world today, is just really powerful computers. It's just, it's not, it's not intelligence by any measure. But what we do do a lot is kind of is imagine what this intelligence might look like. And in particular, the intelligence we tend to imagine are, are theoretical super intelligences, i.e. intelligences that are more powerful in certain ways, in some ways, in whatever ways, than human intelligence. And I think this is a really powerful, important thought experiment to do because so much of human supremacy is based on the idea that we are more intelligent than everything else. Um, but with the advent of artificial intelligence, it, it feels like, or even just with the idea of a kind of theoretical superintelligence, we're kind of approaching a, a Copernican moment, a moment in which we realize that we're not at the center of everything anymore. And that has fundamental implications for how we treat everything else. Because our entire relationship with the rest of the planet is based on this notion of superiority is based on the fact that we have some um, dominion over everything else because we perceive ourselves to be the most powerful and most intelligent thing on this planet. And therefore, by some kind of divine right, we can do with it what we will. So if we're really trying to build something more intelligent than us, then, we're, then we, are, we are designing and trying to bring into being something that will take that place over us. And if we don't want to be used as cattle, by this theoretical superintelligence. I'm talking theoretically, but also kind of, I think, meaningfully about this. Then we must understand that those notions of hierarchy on which this whole system is based are incredibly dangerous, not just in that theoretical future, but in the present and in the way that we treat everything else on this planet. And if we want to, um, uh, to survive, you know, the, the situation that we're creating on this planet, Part of that has to be the undoing of these systems of domination that have got us to this point. And, and why I'm, I really think the discussions of AI, you know, shade into, into kind of dystopian uncertainty when we're forced to confront that question of what would it meaningfully like, be like to live with a, um, you know, a, a super intelligence, something more powerful than us. Well, under present conditions, it would look awful because it would likely treat us the way we've been treating mm. everything else, yes. including other humans, for centuries. And so if we actually want to imagine a better future with AI, then we have to imagine a better future with other humans and the more than human world in the present. Yeah, is this why, um, you know, Elon Musk and some other uh, huge tech guys have, like, they, they signed a petition against uh, super smart AI uh, developments. Yeah, well, those guys are experts in, in domination and cruelty, yeah. right? And then the, their main worry is that, uh, you know, an AI will treat them the way they've been treating yeah. the rest of us all of this time. So, of course, they're scared. Yeah. Um, and they also have a, they, they have a, you know, understanding of how power operates. Um, but they also have an understanding of power operates, you know, from the perspective of people who hold a certain kind of dominating power within society at the moment. And they are incapable of imagining other forms of you know, being with other species and other beings in the world at the present. So we shouldn't listen to them too much. Yeah. And um, 
you're right that we uh, need machines better suited to the world. Um, if we want to have uh, machines better suited to the world we want to live in and less uh, inclined to the kinds of opacity, centralization of power and violence. And you propose three conditions for better, uh, more ecological machines. Can you tell a bit more about this? Yeah, I mean, in the book, I, I go quite deep into the kind of history of computation and the way in which the machines, the by which I mean the kind of high technology computers and the internet of the present has evolved. And they've come about through a set of decisions over the last um, 80 or so years about how computers should be designed. But throughout that history, you have like these really intriguing moments when other things were possible that goes right back to um, kind of Alan Turing's first papers about um, about computation in the 90s, 40s and 1950s, when in the paper in which Turing first proposes what we now call the universal machine, which is 99.99% of all computers in use today, um, and he, did, he calls it an automatic machine because it's a machine that takes a set of instructions and processes them until they're done, down a kind of linear path that doesn't brook any uh, kind of argument or change. And that's all the computers that we have. You know, there are these incredibly powerful but incredibly narrow machines. But in that same paper, he points out that another type of machine might exist, what he calls an oracle machine. And the oracle machine, he doesn't really say anything about it except to say that it cannot be a machine. And it's this very kind of strange little side note that he just leaves that hanging for us to kind of come back to years later. And what I propose in the book is that the oracle is the rest of the world. Because what he's leaving open is a computer that doesn't just process based on its own narrow data, but is actually connected to the rest of the world, uh, that is aware of its place within an ecological network. Um, and I look in the book at various forms of computers that um, are not Turing machines, things like hydrological computers, which are computers that run on water, that run on fluids of various kinds, whether they're calculating machines as were built by kind of Soviet engineers in the 50s and 60s, uh, whether they are uh, kind of large-scale models of rivers and dams that were built by the U.S. Corps of Engineers throughout the 60s and 70s in the U.S. Um, these kind of other imaginings of what comp computation would be like if it was more in touch with the world. And as a result of that, the, the three things that I talk about in the book as being possible models for kind of more ecological computing are computers which are um, uh, non-binary, uh, which are distributed, and which are... Um, What's the other thing I say? <laughs> <laughs> Let me look at my notes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also, um, it's, it just, it's just published, eh? yeah. The three conditions are necessary for machines to be, become a part of the flourishing communities of uh, human and non-humans, non-binary, decentralized and unknowing. Unknowing, thank you. Yeah. Uh, see, there you go, I forgot to know. Uh, so this, the three conditions I've phrased are these, these things of being non-binary, decentralized and unknowing. And by non-binary, I mean <laughs> not, uh, you know, in hoc to the particular narrow mathematical ways of thinking that um, uh, that we've built computers to be. I, I, not digital, not composed of ones and zeros, but of an awareness that everything is essentially a spectrum. Everything is a degrees between one of those shades of gray, however you want to put it, uh, that is less in hoc to these ideas of false binaries that by their nature create hierarchies. Um, by distributed, I mean uh, both um, uh, literally distributed as in ones that are not like centrally owned, that are not um, that are not property of corporations or of individuals, but are spread amongst many as many as possible people and and ways of uh, ways of using them, but also metaphorically that distribute power, um, that that kind of reveal themselves to us in ways that we can understand them, so that we are all empowered by using them, and finally that they're unknowing in the sense that they are not kind of um, uh, static and bounded and convinced of their own expertise, um, that there is always space within these systems for doubt and for change, um, uh, that they're not rigid, um, but that they admit to kind of faults and the possibility of things being done in different ways, uh, none of which are properties of the kind of computers we use in the present, but are absolutely uh, possibilities both of our kind of future thinking and of the things that we build in the future. Yeah, and you also say that astrology and uh, the I Ching and um, yeah, future telling, uh, speculative uh, thinking that is quite 
popular also today. And you don't, you don't, you say that it's not a coincidence that we uh, turn to like uh, astrology or uh, the the I Ching. No, I mean, I, and I, I don't, I don't say that as an endorsement of any particular system, <laughs> um, but I do say it because I do feel that there is a totally understandable reaction in the present to the kind of opaque and rigid systems that we're all forced to use all the time. We know there's something wrong with those systems. They're not working. Uh, they're not working for us, um, but they're also not working in a larger sense in that they're damaging everything. Um, and so, of course, we, we kind of turn to those kind of systems, particularly systems that produce chance and change as part of their operation, that admit to the, the possibility of chance and change, um, because, because those things are an incredibly important part of, of, of us and the universe as well. Yeah, so that we also access different kind of filter purposes. I mean, we're all in this kind of world that we have created and it keeps on um, telling us the same thing in a way. Yeah? Um, so you also talk about an internet of animals. And then I imagine when you say the word internet of animals, I imagine dogs behind laptops or animals behind their computers. What do you mean with um, the internet of animals? Because I think I know it's a different uh, concept. Yeah, so the Internet of Animals is a term that's been increasingly used in um, really in, in kind of uh, animal behavior and biological studies to talk about new systems of sensing that are allowing us to get a better understanding of um, how animals actually live their lives, uh, what their needs and desires are uh, through the use of kind of large scale tracking through kind of GPS tags or um satellite tracking or so on and so forth that give us this kind of incredible view on the world around us that really wasn't possible before it's a really good example of where you know technologies that you know are not always beneficial can sometimes give us this kind of incredible new insight into the world around us so an example is like the large-scale use of um, uh, gps tags on deer in north america where they've kind of put tags on huge numbers of pronghorn antelope and, and other other deer um, in order to better understand their migration routes and therefore crucially to change kind of road systems or to build you know, bridges or overpasses for the use of animals to reduce animal deaths on roads. And what, what's critical for me about this is we're, we're changing human behavior as a result of our understanding of non-human needs and desires. And what that really means is that we're starting to admit animals into our political arrangements, into our social arrangements, that we're actually starting to account for them in new ways as a result of, you know, this technology, the internet of animals. Um, so really what, you know, the internet of animals has this quite precise technical meaning in terms of these systems of kind of tracking and overview that allow us to gather scientific knowledge. But for me, it's also an extension of other ideas of kind of networks, social networks and political networks beyond the human in ways that um, start to enact some of the things that I talk about in the book in terms of like possible relationships we might have with other species in the future. Yeah, and um, AI reveals its depth and supplication to non-human minds. Internet reproduces the entangled complexity of fungal networks. Gene sequences expose the cloudy, reticulated origins of our biology. Random walk. Vogs provide the best paths through a knowable complexity to meaningly understanding. <laughs> this is a really, uh, that's a good, uh, long <laughs> sentence. Stuff, yeah. <laughs> Trying to say, um, you say that um, it can be said that the unconscious goal of computation since its instantiation has been to rediscover and remake its connection to the uncomputable. But um, is this still possible? We spend a lot of time with our computers or phones or technologies or machines. And um, dataists, um, they think that uh, everything in the universe can be captured in data and algorithms. Um, what is it that is truly um, incomputable? incomputable? The, the world. The world, the, the world is not a computer. Um, like computation is a way of thinking about the world as something that could be broken down into data and processed for a solution. That's not what the world is like. Uh, the world is an ongoing process of relationship and becoming. Um, it involves like our interactions with everything around us. And if we narrow our relationships to ones that are purely defined by computation, by the processing of data, then not only do we miss out on most of the world, 
Um, we also distort the world in really dangerous ways that are incredibly evident, both in you know what's happening to us cognitively and socially through the, the use of algorithms and, and various forms of processing, or that is happening to the climate and, and, and the ecological world, the more than human world, as a result of our industrial processes. So we've gone through you know this incredible process of narrowing our thinking. Um, but it can't last. Uh, it can't possibly last because, as we've said over and over again in various ways, like the, there is an unbreakable connection between us and the rest of the world um, that continually reasserts itself. And it's currently reasserting itself very violently through climate change. You know, we, we've ignored the world for so long that there is this kind of violent reassertion of the natural state of the world occurring. That's what climate change is. And it's up to us whether we can actually um, change ourselves in time to, to respond to that, to mitigate it in certain ways, to live with it in ways that actually allow us and everything else on the planet to survive. Yeah, and what can be the role, you talk also a lot about symbiosis in the book. Um, can you tell a bit about what you mean with that? Yeah, symbiosis, well, symbiosis is the idea from, from the evolutionary sciences. Um, that is an understanding of evolution as a, a collaborative process, essentially, not one of kind of li linear descent um, as, um, as, uh, as the kind of old ideas of evolution believed that these traits were simply passed down from one to the other, down these very fixed, narrow lines of species. Symbiosis shows that um, evolution has always been a, a process of collaboration, a process of kind of intermingling of different things the, the the you know the the classic example is the um is that deep within our own cells um you know the structures that make up the human cell were composed of multiple forms of previously free living bacteria that kind of consumed one another that came to to, to coexist almost as different species uh, but within ourselves you know humans are are these kind of big walking assemblages of multiple species. Like there's two and a half kilos of us that is essentially other organisms at any one time. There's no such thing as species or individual, we're starting to realize that all the processes that go into making up human lives are processes of collaboration between multiple different organisms. And that, that we need to really internalize that understanding so we can start to behave you know, in accordance with that towards the wider world in ways that start to kind of realign our relationship with the world in ways that are mutually beneficial to all of us. The Ways of Being is for sale now, so I really recommend reading it for everyone. And we will see you back uh, next year at Stripe. Yeah, yeah look looking forward to forward. hoping to finish the project. Yeah, really curious to see how it goes. Thank it sounds you. exciting. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You listen to Here's to the Future, a podcast by Stripe, an Eindhoven-based organization that wants to set up an open dialogue with the public, artists, designers, media makers and thinkers about the relationship between people, experimental technology, society and the future.